everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, uh, which our next one is coming up, Crypto Bahamas, in partnership with FTX. Uh, in late April at the beautiful Baja Mar Resort. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome the great Orlando Bravo to Salt Talks. Orlando is the founder and managing partner of Toma Bravo, uh, where he led the firm's early entry into software buyouts and built it into one of the top private equity firms in the world. Orlando directs the firm's strategy and investment decisions aligned with its principles of partnership, innovation, and performance. Orlando was born in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. Uh, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a bachelor's degree in economics and political science from Brown University and earned a JD from Stanford Law School and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Orlando is an active philanthropist, which is to say the least, uh, with the history of advocating for equitable opportunities, especially in education and entrepreneurship, and especially in his uh, home country of Puerto Rico. Uh, he's the founder and chairman of the Bravo Family Foundation, which provides access and opportunity to young adults in particular in Puerto Rico. Uh, after Hurricane Maria, he spearheaded a humanitarian mission to remote communities on the island. And in 2019, Orlando committed $100 million to the foundation's Rising Entrepreneurs Program aimed at fostering entrepreneurship in Puerto Rico. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. He's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview. Orlando, did you notice how he tries to pronounce everything with like a Puerto Rican twang or a Spanish twang? Did you catch that in his voice, you know? I was going to mention them. That was pretty yeah, it was good. impressive, right? That yeah, he does that. He does that with everybody. You know, if he's got like an Indian guy on from Bombay, he fires out the Indian pronunciation of the word and stuff. It's it's, it's very impressive. I just wanted to make sure that I acknowledge that because I know that you noticed it as well. So I just had to acknowledge it. But but I'd like, if you don't mind, my first question is really about your background and uh, tell us a little bit more about it and how you ended up in private equity. Well, well, first, uh, John, that was awesome. Thanks for having me. And Anthony, thanks so much for hosting this. Uh, I'm really excited about talking to you. Um, wow, how I ended up in private equity. How can I make that brief? I'm, I am from my West Puerto Rico. And the, the one thing I'd, I'd like to share with the audience about that is that I, I did not grow up disadvantaged, but I grew up in an isolated place. Like Mayaguez is on the West Coast and it takes like three and a half hours to get to San Juan and you kind of stay in your town. And it's a great town with a lot of friends. But if you want to do um, something different, you always have to be going outside and taking risks and experimenting. So I kind of maybe grew up with that with that DNA. And, and also the, the second thing is in terms of, for me, ending up in private equity is about risk taking. And I felt like I had nothing to lose. Um, and from my upbringing in competitive tennis and people that gave me opportunities, it just seemed like a great place to perform a one-on-one -on -one art uh, and, and way to compete for deals that was uh, really close to, to my makeup and what I wanted to do. 
uh, I didn't know anything about the business when I was at Brown undergrad. And you know how these how that great institution is. You meet so many friends. And I had met this incredibly worldly uh, kid that grew up in New York. And right before I was going to go to law school, he said, you really got to interview for these investment banks. And that kind of changed uh, my career path. You know, it's interesting. I uh, I was reading in your bio that you uh, you had played tennis at Nick Boletari's uh, tennis academy back in the day, and uh, I know Nick a long time because uh, he went to college with my father in law, and so we had a uh, a close relationship with him. I'm wondering if any of that impacted you because I know Nick well and I know the culture that he tried to instill in that tennis academy. Um, tell me about the impact, if any, that tennis had on you in terms of your career management and how you think about teamwork and discipline and so forth. The biggest, um, look, uh, for me as a really young person, the, the first tennis tournament I played outside of Puerto Rico, I was 10 years old and I played this big international tournament in Caracas, Venezuela. Uh, Jim Courier was there, uh, just great Argentine players, great Venezuelan players. And the, the first thing that it gave me, and I wasn't nearly as good as they were, even at that age, uh, when we all turned 16, those great players even separated themselves more. But, but what it gave me was the feeling that it was cool to do something special and something different. You felt like you had a sense of purpose uh, really early on. And now with the way we work at Tomo Bravo, I feel that our whole team shares like a bigger sense of purpose than just making a great IRR or participating in this financial system of, of private equity. And I think that, that makes us quite different as a culture and team. And then the second thing is the humility of how difficult it is, how difficult each match is. Now we have 100 billion under management and all these great things. But on the next deal, that doesn't matter. So that, that really reminds me of tennis. You could be the number one seed at a tournament and had just won the prior one. And the next one, you have to win the first round against a really tough opponent. That's not easy. And you have to, you start from zero every, every, every time. Your, your, uh, your approach to software investing is unique. Uh, you're looking at things from a different angle. Uh, some of it's financial, some of it's actually the underpinnings of the uh, the blueprint of the software. Tell us about why you were attracted to software investing and tell us about some of the things you think uh, Toma Bravo has in terms of its competitive advantages. Yeah, um, and I appreciate you mentioning Unique. We, we try to work really hard on that in this incredibly competitive world. Um, first, 22 years ago, we didn't have that much to lose because our predecessor fund wasn't doing that great. I had made a bunch of mistakes. I was based in the San Francisco office. I kind of had a passion for technology, had a lot of friends in the field. So we were kind of looking for something new, but it was easier to look for something new when what you had going wasn't working that well. When, when we really dug in, and that was after the internet bubble burst, it, it was really clear to us then, actually, that this was an incredible investment opportunity. You could buy, at the time, recurring revenues in software much cheaper than in any other industry. 
that our mentors had looked at over the preceding decade. Uh, and in addition to that, when you went to spend, you know, in those days, things moved a lot slower. So you could literally spend three weeks at a company going through their files, through their change orders. You would see how stable those customer relationships were. And finally, with 90% gross margins, since we come from a fundamental investing uh, mentorship culture, we're like, how come these companies are not profitable? you should be able to produce really high rates of cash flow. So that's what attracted us to it. And it kept building. I remember there was a time in 05 when we were buying this company, Datatel, in higher education software. It was about a $260 million deal, which was half the size of our fund at the time. And I remember telling Carl Toma, hey, Carl, why would anybody be buying for-profit schools, which were really popular then in 05, with regulatory issues, uh, lack of uh, placement of these kids in great jobs, uh, financial aid issues, you name it. Why would anybody buy that if you want to be in education instead of buying this company, which provides the, all the systems that these colleges need to run on and has like perfect metrics for the same price? And he looked at me and he was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. So once again, it has continued building because now you can buy billion-dollar SaaS companies, 100% recurring, growing at over 20% in huge tabs and improve their operations, which is even, it's not even close to what we were doing 10 years ago. Of course, evaluations are different, but you have to adjust to that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears abruptly because it is tied in though. It's a, it's a certain type of software and that's Bitcoin. And so you have all this software experience, you've got all this distinctive um, investment acumen. What a approach did you take to Bitcoin and what was your eureka moment in Bitcoin and why are you so bullish? We were not, you know, we're not one of the pioneers or close to that in Bitcoin, but it was the same in software, right? We were not a pioneer in software. There were all these incredible venture firms built over the years, many years before we started, we just applied our own approach to it. Um, my, my big moment moment um, in Bitcoin and crypto was when I really understood the movement. It all fits together. Uh, you have a world where young people want their own culture and they want their own financial system and they're creating it. <laughs> and, and there's so many things that are wrong with our current financial system. It has served all of us great. It is a better system than any other system. I get that but it has so many inefficiencies, so many issues that we deal with in private equity day in and day out. I mean, the fees are outrageous. The discounts to go public, the fees of going public, the fees to sell stock. I mean, they really affect the net return that we provide uh, to our investors. That's just uh, an example of, of, of us being in the business for, for that long. But when you really get to understand what it's about, you really get excited around it. And then the fact that all the smartest people are now going into it. Plus the capital from smart, smart venture capitalists means that there's no stopping this movement of peer-to-peer -peer computing, more transparent world, all the DeFi applications that are being built that are challenging a lot of the old ways of doing things. All that makes sense. And then for me, Bitcoin is, well, the use case is the perfect use case. It's the money of that system. It's the money for collateral. It's the moment, the money that you post. It's kind of what holds all that system together. Worried about regulation related to Bitcoin? 
I think regulation would be a big plus. I think a big knock on it is that um, regulators perhaps have chosen not to look deeply enough into it yet. Uh, I think the, that's the, 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 that whole ecosystem, it's likely to go through severe ups and downs still. And there are issues around security. And of course, there are many fraudulent schemes. Uh, there's in many cases lack of transparency, but all these things will get fixed uh, over time and regulation will likely help it. Um, I don't, you know, people were celebrating the Biden executive order. I thought it was a net positive. It, 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 it didn't have that much in it, except to say, let's, let's go look at this and hopefully uh, back innovation in it and let's make a more transparent world, et cetera. Uh, I think it was a, a nice step, uh, but, but once again, I don't think it had really anything to, to, to go uh, too crazy about. Let me, let me ask you this, because I'm always curious about deal makers. What's the, your favorite deal that you ever worked on, Orlando? Oh, man, there's so many. And I, I remember everything everybody said in every deal, for, for, because I love it. What the banker said at the time, we said back, what we heard the competitor was doing, what was going on with the financing, how the price got adjusted, did we win by a little, did we win by a lot, what, or lose? I, I, I remember everything and that is a really, really tough question. Um, but I'll have to pick one. I would pick Bluco, security software that we bought for 1.1 billion uh, at the time, it's around 2011. Uh, highly, highly competitive process. And the, the reason why that deal was my favorite is before that time, uh, you could get a company into exclusivity to then have a private conversation with the CEO of management about what your plan was to make sure that they bought into that plan or that you saw eye to eye, once again, in a private setting after you had the deal. And then you could decide uh, whether to really move forward or not. At that time, right after the financial crisis, things changed and you had to act really quickly. There was no such thing as an exclusivity. You it was all out in the open and you had to just sign up for it. And that was the, the first deal of that kind. When coming into it, we decided, let's tell management everything and let's give them all of our thoughts and our plan. And you know what, if they share it with all the other buyers, that's okay. But there's only one way to do business is be completely open uh, because that's the only way we, we invest and partner with people. And we did that and management kept it completely confidential. It was like, that's Tom Ramos' plan. The other party may have another plan. The other party may have another plan. And I was just really inspired by the trust that that built and that allowed us to continue to do that without even thinking about it going forward. At the end of the deal, there was a lot of jockeying for position. And we ended up winning that deal. It was a take private on a best and final by 17 cents. And it was a completely blind bid. Uh, you know, it turned out to be a great deal. And then it turned out to be a great deal for the group that bought it from us. But that, that was a special one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to John in a second because he's got a ton of questions for you. But I want to shift gears and go into uh, philanthropy for a moment. 
Um, you've done a great job in your native town, your hometown, but also Puerto Rico in general. You've done a great job as, uh, in academia and research. Tell us a little bit about how you think about your giving of your money and where you're putting it and why. Well, you know, we've, we've all been so lucky at the institutions that we've been part of and what has been given to us. So we have a responsibility, social responsibility to um, leave the world a better place than the one we enter. Uh, so I, I started in philanthropy with the institutions that I had been a part of and that had gave me, given me opportunity. But my, my big moment in philanthropy was when Hurricane Maria happened and I had not been doing business or much philanthropy in Puerto Rico. And a day and a half into the hurricane, um, we befriended a reporter that really told us how different parts of the island were affected. And some of them had a day and a half or two days left of food and water. And in an entrepreneurial way, just like we all do in financial services, uh, in investing and in business, we picked up our bags, brought whatever we could, got on a plane, and, and there we were, um, helping out. What, what that, how I approach it is, is two things, and I, I tell this to young people all the time. First, if, if there's something that's very personal to you, that's part of you, if you don't do something about it, nobody else will do anything about it. So the communities that we were working with, we were initially for about a month, the only party there. FEMA wasn't there, and there wasn't much outside help. And the second thing and how I approach it is, um, if there's something very personal to you, go all in. Focus all on that. You don't have to divide it into many, many different things. That's still good, but go all in. And the way I approach philanthropy is we're very hands-on, just like we are at Tomo Bravo. So in our foundation in Puerto Rico, we don't delegate programs to other great nonprofit organizations, we run them ourselves. So we have a big team that runs all the programs, Rising Entrepreneurs Program, backing community leaders of nonprofit organizations, uh, working with talented young adults in high schools, different programs all around the same thing, looking to provide great opportunities for talented young adults that otherwise don't have those. Uh, kind of a similar story to many of us, but looking to do it in a meaningful way in this relatively small island. John Darcy. Orlando, podemos hacer el resto de la entrevista en español. Está bien. Perfecto. Um, in terms of entrepreneurship. I mean, I mean, it's like unbelievable show offness, though, Orlando. You know what I mean? It's like it's like unbelievable. You know what I mean? And he and he waited. He like cocked the gun and paused and everything. It's unbelievable, Orlando. Unbelievable. You called him out and there he is. Yeah. Ready. You know what I mean? And also remember something. You are a fellow baby boomer. It's you and me against him. OK, go ahead, Dorsey. Go ahead. Dorsey, the question is, do you know how to say EBITDA in Spanish? EBITDA. <laughs> oh, that is a good question. My my business Spanish isn't quite up to par, but uh, back in the day, I, I studied a little bit of Espanol. Um, but uh, given that we have a mainly English speaking audience, I guess we'll have to, to go with my more comfortable first language. But in terms of entrepreneurship, you know, you, you have a big focus on that. And I think that's very interesting. I know Anthony is a supporter of groups like Nifty, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and things like that. And I think it's a very interesting way to approach 
philanthropy, which is, you know, teaching someone how to fish, right? When you're teaching someone how to become an entrepreneur, what are some of the core lessons that you offer young people? We, um, we do so much. I'll tell you the philosophy of it, which is uh, we really work with young people to teach them how to take risk. Uh, that's kind of a, of a given in Silicon Valley, but it's certainly not in Puerto Rico. How to celebrate failures, how to take risks that are your type of risks that you understand that are part of what you would be comfortable with and living with all the time. Uh, we, we do a lot of mentorship on that. Um, the, the second one is we teach them and try to instill principles of confidence in thinking big. Uh, the talent in Puerto Rico is phenomenal. These young entrepreneurs are really, really, really good, very thoughtful, and getting them to think big is, is, a, is a big challenge. And we work with mentors who are primarily CEOs of Tom Bravo portfolio companies that may have had similar journeys where other people gave them opportunity, and we, we put programs in place to do that. I, I'm really proud of the fact that our, our Rising Entrepreneurs Program uh, has a unique element to it. Many other great programs are very focused on raising money and connections, and those are great. Our program is really focused on how to run a business since there's lack of money in Puerto Rico, lack of venture capital. So we've packaged in all of the metrics that we use in running software companies, <laughs> how to recruit on sales, quotas, turnover, uh, uh, territory allocation, inside, outside, just take that, but we've done it across all the functions and we've packaged it in a way that could be useful to an entrepreneur that's looking to start uh, and then and then build build a business. Fantastic. I'm going to go back to digital assets or crypto for a minute. You know, Anthony asked you about Bitcoin. I know you're bullish on Bitcoin, both as a you know a new software paradigm and also as a as a store of value. But in terms of the metaverse, you know, those are sort of that's sort of the other side of the crypto equation is you know DeFi, the metaverse. How big do you think that opportunity is? Why are you so excited about the metaverse, um, broadly speaking? And uh, why, why do you think it's really going to take off? Well, think of it's, it's so big that it's, I think it's impossible to quantify. Um, it's like how big is the, the, the reality of the world? Um, think of any online interaction now and augmenting that significantly. Uh, it, it provides so that the use cases of doing that are so beyond what we could think about now, right? Right now, um, let's call it an easy use case is gaming. And it's an extremely powerful use case because it's not only about increasing people's utility or just having fun. I've met uh, young people from disadvantaged communities that we work with and help to get into private equity or finance or help them out through, uh, through college, through mentorship. And I've met multiple of them that have said, I love gaming. And I, I ask them why, why is that such a big thing? And they go, well, you know, I can take some time off from all the troubles of the day or the household or what's going on. And for one hour, I can be a dragon or I can be this character. And you, and you know, that is real. <laughs> And that is just awesome that it exists as an avenue for exploring and for, you know, feeling uh, better about yourself or, or being different. And, and, and that is, uh, I would call it a, a use case that kind of exists right now, but would be augmented uh, by the metaverse. But think about 
the big problems that we face in society. Okay, take one, right, which we, we look to deal with in Puerto Rico, income inequality, lack of opportunity. And then you apply that to education. You say, why, why do some kids in poor areas of public schools have to keep going back to those schools? Could there be incredible learning experiences and collaboration between different uh, uh, economic status uh, in education and put these kids together in the metaverse, maybe a day a week, maybe two, and change the game and change the paradigm? And I, I think it's, uh, it's actually up to uh, the limiter of it is people's creativity and people's willingness to look at things differently. Right. Switching gears a little bit away from Bitcoin metaverse uh, and back to, to private equity. You know, I think a lot of leading private equity investors that we've had on this show have talked about how much private equity has evolved during their career. And not all of them are as young as you. Uh, so you might not have lived through uh, some of the, the private equity uh, you know, industry in the, in the early 80s and mid late 80s. But uh, since you've been in this industry, how has it evolved and, and you think it's evolved for the better or worse? Oh, I think it's, I think it's much better. Maybe what I can give you is the last two decades in brief, uh, especially in tech. If you look at it, 2000 to pretty much through the financial crisis, 2009, maybe 2010, private equity in tech was niche. Uh, you were playing at the fringes of software and technology because you were buying these uh, niche vertical market software companies mainly. And the whole game was buying cheap, cutting costs, and increasing prices. If you did those three you could, and, and had the courage to be in the sector, you would make a great return. Uh, 2010 till about 2014, Leverage came in permanently into the business. After 10 years, the banks figured out that these were stable assets that would produce a lot of cash flow that um, were good to lend against. So now the industry, you could do the bigger deal. You could do the billion dollar plus deal. A lot of those happened. But 2014 till now and going forward, private equity in our space is all about growth. You cannot make any money buying at 10 times forward ARR by cutting costs or putting leverage. And leverage is such a small part, part of the financing anyway, and those huge prices that you have to earn it through being right on growth and through putting up so many overtime operational improvements of which cost is a very small part of it. And that is why in, this, in these two decades, the firms that participate in the space have come and gone. People think about the firms that are in it now, but 20 years ago, the competitive set was completely different. And the, I, I do believe really strongly that the better firms are the ones that have an underlying culture and philosophy of something that's not tactical. If, if at the time you were, hey, what do you do as private equity? I'm value. I'm cheap. Great. You probably did great for 10 years, and now there's no cheap to buy. Or if you, were, if, if you define yourself as frugal, I'm a cost cutter. Great. Once again, there's you can't really make money with that now. But if you have a philosophy like, like I do believe that we have, you can then change your tactics and evolve them over time to better fit the opportunity that the market serves you. Uh, 
back in 2012 and 13, we decided as a firm that there was no more great money to be made trying to buy value and, and, and doing what we did before. But there was a much better opportunity because now you could buy market leaders, SaaS, that were growing rapidly. Even you were paying much higher revenue multiples, that's much better than, than, than what we were doing before. So in public markets, obviously, uh, in the early stages of COVID, we went through sort of a golden age of valuations and growth and, and tech stocks were uh, soaring to unprecedented heights in terms of, of valuations. We've seen uh, a big pullback in that regard, you know, largely driven by speculation around Fed tightening and things like that. You know, do you think that we got completely out of hand? Obviously, things have, have pulled back significantly, but at current valuations, do you think you know, these are attractive levels to be entering that space, or is it somewhere in between today's valuations and where we reached, you know, many months ago or in the early days of the pandemic? That's a trick question because we just have a lot of trouble. Um, as if, if, when we think about public investing, yep. we, have a lot, we have a lot of trouble buying revenue multiples when we really know that that operation, the way it's put together and the set of management priorities that, that the organization has are not really meant to produce a lot of profits in the future. So we have a lot of trouble with the following game that investors have commonly used over the last five years. And that's, well, I'll extrapolate that in year four, the margin will be 25 to 30%. And therefore, I'll back into what an EBITDA or PE should be then and get a rate of return by buying at a certain revenue multiple today. We, we cannot make that leap uh, as a non-control shareholder of the company. Since most of the universe today is still unprofitable, I really don't know as a, if, if I was a buyer of a public security, whether it's expensive or not. I really, really could not tell you. Now, the, the profitable software stocks that are out there, we believe that this is a, a wonderful entry point because they're starting to trade closer on an earnings basis or on never free cash flow as the S&P. And they're much better businesses with much higher growth rates, with much better cash flow dynamics. Finally, and, and maybe most importantly, and now as a business owner, as, as a buyer of companies, this is a very attractive time uh, to be to be entering the space. So shifting gears again to a more macro question. So you spent a lot of your life and career in Silicon Valley, you know, in Northern California. Uh, you're now basically between Puerto Rico and Miami. You know, Miami is where your business is now headquartered. Why did you make that decision like a lot of people have recently to to leave places like San Francisco or New York and, and spread out and, and come to a place like Miami in particular, how do you think the world is changing in the way people are you know, moving themselves geographically uh, in the way that we can source talent and start businesses in different places? But just talk us through your macro mindset about how the world has changed and why you're you know, shifting gears in, in terms of where you're spending your time. Yeah. I lived in San Francisco for 27 years. Uh, and, and part of those 27 years were the heyday of San Francisco, of the city as well. 
which are really, really interesting and, and incredibly fun. Uh, we could have stayed very comfortably, 100% of us just in San Francisco and been totally happy and, and done great. No problem with that. The, the move to Miami personally and for approximately half of our team is about becoming more worldly, exploring, being entrepreneurial, and really, really importantly, developing the next generation leadership. There is a very open field in Miami with all the people coming in and all the changes. It kind of reminds me of how San Francisco was 30 years ago with, with all the entrepreneurship, uh, all the opportunities to think differently, which is so important in software private equity, and to also develop yourself as a leader and individual in a community that's very open to that, where a lot of things can still be improved, where a lot of philanthropy can be put in place. That, that, is, that was a big motivator in terms of us inspiring the next generation of leadership to grow up in these two places and collaborate that way. It'll make us a, a, a better adjusted firm and group of people. So you're an optimistic guy, you know, to have the type of success that you've had investing in growth companies, you look at the world, you know, through a very optimistic lens, which is fantastic. But as you, you know, to have the success you've had, you also are a risk manager and you look at, you know, what risks are on the horizon that people are not necessarily paying as much attention to. Obviously, there are the headline risks today, uh, things like global conflicts, like we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine, uh, you know, Fed tightening, things like that. But what do you think are the biggest risks uh, to uh, investment portfolios, whether it be growth investing or, or just general financial markets? The, the risk that we think about is very micro for us, even though um, I'm optimistic. And, I, and I'm, I'm optimistic because every business problem can be solved. And we're mainly in the control business with these great companies. So you can, you can engage in very... Uh, creative operational discussions and apply an analytical approach to decision-making together with inspiring people to, to solve problems. So I'm very micro-focused. The thing that we worry about is what we can control, which is we worry about doing a really big deal that goes bad very quickly, where we really did not call the trends right, we missed something, uh, we did not communicate with management properly, so we were not on the same page. We can recover from that because everybody runs a diversified enough portfolio, but the time it takes and the lack of confidence that that gives our, our individuals is, is really, really, really tough. So we try to, to watch against that. Um, in general, um, I really worry about the big valuations that growth equity funds have been entering the private market for these assets. We are seeing growth equity rounds, not even pre-IPO rounds, because there's no such thing right now, because there's no IPO, so there's no pre-IPO round. But we're seeing rounds way ahead of the prevailing public market multiples, three times ahead uh, of them, which, which that time of reckoning you know, will come, and, and that'll be pretty painful for, for the industry. Well, Anthony, I'm going to let you get a last word in before we uh, let Orlando go. 
But the, the last thing I have to say is fue un placer recibirte, uh, señor, hoy. Muchas gracias. Orlando, how am I going to top that, okay? How am I going to top that? I mean, I can say like, yo soy Anthony or something like that. But how am I going to top that, Orlando? It's terrible, right? You see, you see how this like new generation of people just tries to step on our faces, you know? I I say that every generation is better than, I mean, than the you know, prior. What, what am I going to do, right? Being I mean, worldly, I, Anthony. I'm trying to be worldly, you know? You're, you're just, I'm, 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 I'm very you know? impressed, okay? And and I am I am not the strong silent type. I'm the weak big mouth type, Orlando. And he has shut me up with his Spanish. I just <laughs> I just I just want to thank you for joining us. But more importantly, congratulations on an amazing career. And in a in a moment of real seriousness, you are showing the way for so many young people uh, to think about innovation, philanthropy, giving. Your story is so inspiring, Orlando, and it's a real delight for us to have you on Salt Talks. Thank you again. Wow. Thank you. And thank you so much for those comments. And, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you again, Orlando. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Orlando Bravo. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk, you can find it on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel or on our podcast feed. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks if you enjoy listening to them. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.